Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to Papa and Banks with Giants legend Carl Banks and broadcaster Bob Papa. Welcome to another edition of the Papa Banks Show. Bob Papa, along with two-time Super Bowl champion Carl Banks. Everything National Football League right here. Plus, every week, Carl has something to get off his chest and vent a little bit. We're joined by the one, the only, the incomparable, Peter King of NBC Sports, Football Morning in America, and a guy who has been covering this league for a long time. Peter, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Great to be on with you guys. Thanks, Bob. Carl, you got some big news to share with our audience first. Before we get yes, into the am, off your chest I am stuff. A, I am a first-time grandfather. Attaway, baby. Um, yes. His, his name is Zar Damani Banks and uh, was born 818 on Wednesday night. Super excited. Congratulations so Peter, to my, Peter, my you, son, Courtney. Yeah, congratulations to your son, um, Peter. You've experienced this, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. Pretty, as, as like Carl, know what the, he's in for. As the grandfather of two, I can just tell you. And look, this week, you know, it's different for us, Carl, because my wife and I we live in Brooklyn, and we've got one daughter who lives in Berkeley, California, and the other lives in Seattle, and our two grandchildren are in Berkeley, and we were just there this week for Hazel's third birthday. And all I can say is that what's great about being a grandparent is that at about 8.30 at night, you can walk out of the house. Just hand them back. <laughs> you can wash your hands of it and it's oh, over. That's awesome. And you have a fantastic time, but <laughs> then it's over and you yeah. go live your life again. So anyway, that's my, my only advice is to absolutely love it because you will uh and 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 you'll you'll know how great it is when you can walk out of the house at 8 30 at night get in your car and go home <laughs> oh that's awesome all right that you awesome. What, you got anything to get off your chest here before we get into it with no peter? no 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 you know really i i do happy, but right? i don't this is kind of i need to pick peter's brain this is my pick peter brain thing because i'm kind of trying to understand this this uh, NFL player association dynamic as it relates to the NFL itself, where, you know, they, they want a lot of rules changes, Peter, in terms of how players practice. And we're seeing more and more soft tissue injuries. But, you know, it just seems like the, the fallback to everything they want is less football. How, how did they get to this point and how do you get, I mean, Will there ever be a, a a point to where they say, okay, listen, these guys have got to play football because these injuries are getting too much, or are they just going to continue to legislate football out until the season starts? Carl, it's a great question. And, and I think this all goes back to 2011 when the NFL owners basically said, you know, there weren't any coaches in that negotiation room <laughs> in July of 2011. And there weren't only coaches, uh, there weren't coaches saying, you mean we can only have pads on them 14 times during the season? You mean we can only do this, that, or the other thing? We can't have a real off-season program, um, you know, comparatively speaking. And look, 
NFL players have long thought that the offseason program was onerous and it was way too long. But I also think that part of what happened in that long offseason program, and I remember with the Giants when Johnny Parker was the strength and conditioning coach, and he basically started with Bill Parcells, this very rigorous offseason program, which was kind of, it, 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 it wasn't mandatory, but it was voluntary mandatory. <laughs> you know, as you well yeah. know, you were a part of it. Yeah, and it was. I, I think it set the stage for a Giants team that, and look, I think I'm right in saying that the offensive line in that team started 38 consecutive games, you know, over a period longer than two years. And they did that in essence because they believe anyway of what they were able to build in the off season. So, and, and Carl, I think one of the things that is very hard to prove, it appears that there are all these injuries that happen now. And everybody said, geez, why are so many guys getting hurt so early in the year? I thought you were going to go in a different direction. To me, a 17-game season is absurd. It's the height of greed. And I keep hearing about the 18-game season coming at some point in the future. I mean, just look at the injury report now. We're in week five. Okay, the Tennessee Titans, I don't know. Do they have any receivers on their team now? I mean, they're all beat up. You look at some position groups in this league right now, and it's, it's a debacle. It's an absolute debacle. So I agree with you. I think that something in a common sense way should be done to make sure that the offseason program absolutely gets players ready to play this four-month season. You know, and, and Peter, I know just, Carl, to follow up, and I, I've, I've said this before, um, but I'll, uh, for, this art, for this conversation, I'm going to bring it up. Peter, you're a big baseball fan. We got NBA preseason games going on. We have NHL preseason games going on. Baseball has their own version of uh, exhibition season where they play a lot of games. I understand that this sport is different than all the other sports as far as injury. But this sport has gotten to the point now where people think, based on the lack of practice time, the lack of playing in preseason games, somehow they think that you're going to get a good quality product When the last time a lot of guys wore a uniform and played in a game was, say, January 1st or 2nd of the previous year, and then to suit up in September, it just it it makes no sense for the quality of the sport. I mean, this is the only professional sport where people think they cannot play it for nine months and then pick up where they left off. I I agree with you, Bob, and I think that there's no more evidence that you need to see other than the first month of this season where, uh, you know, to me, it's a good thing that these practice squads were expanded last year because I, I I'm waiting to see the stats this year versus last year. I would bet that there've been more guys activated off practice squads out of necessity not because they're playing so great and the opportunity is there. Uh, the opportunity is there, but not because they're great. The opportunity is there because you have so many injuries. 
So I guess my next question then, Peter, is why would the union head encourage players not to show up for off-season conditioning? A lot of them had bonuses built in. Right. And and I don't think, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember, I think the union basically, and, I, and I've got to remember this now, but I thought the union said that they're not going to try to stand in the way of guys who have bonuses for their off-season stuff, but they are going to encourage anybody who didn't have those bonuses, not necessarily encourage. They're basically going to say, hey, this is your decision and you don't have to show up. So I think that is what the NFL needs to, needs to address. And that's what the NFL needs to get right with the Players Association. But look, Carl, I'm just telling you, this contract now is not going to be addressed till 2030. And so wow. I really don't think it's going, to, it's going to change appreciably between now and then because the only way that it can change is for the players to basically get something in order to have an expansion of the offseason program. What possibly could they get other than money and who knows maybe it will end up being money but i don't know any owners who are going to say okay we'll put three million dollars a team into a pool to pay off to pay players significant salaries to participate right. in an off-season program at because look there are no games in april you know, there are no games in March. And so if you ask guys to come in, I think if you want to expand it, you're going to absolutely unequivocally have to make it worth their while. And yeah. I just don't, I don't think owners are going to, are going to pay for that. Okay. So I got to pick your brain on another one. Yep. And this is, it's, it's kind of a delicate one because I don't need to address the issue itself more so than the dynamic. And that's the Urban Meyer dynamic. <laughs> within his locker room. Now you've covered players that have dealt with controversies in season, right? And had to kind of get that ultimatum from ownership and say, hey, look, it's up to you to prove that you're on the straight and narrow, whatever. But this Urban Meyer thing, the fact when it came out that he didn't fly back with his team, but you know, at some point during the off season or during camp, there's always a team address where players are warned about the pitfalls of, of, you know, social interaction, if you will. And so now he has to come back within his organization, face his team. How does, you know, how do coaches deal with that? Is there a spin cycle for that? Because, you know, team PR know how to spin it or position a player just to lay low and do all the right things. How does that work for a coach? See, Carl, I think there's two dynamics at play here. Um, you know, I think, number one, for any player who would say, I've on the Jaguars, and I've not talked to a single player on the Jaguars, so I can't tell you this with any certainty. But for any player who would say that he's lost respect for Meyer and or that he's lost the locker room or whatever, um, he, here's the bottom line. At the, end of, at the end of the day, next offseason, when uh, a general manager 
or a scouting director is looking at tape of potential free agents and he looks at John Q. Public, a tight end for the Jaguars, and he looks and see him, sees him missing blocks and, and not playing hard and walking around and basically not giving a full effort, okay? Uh, that guy, in essence, is cutting his own throat. It, it doesn't make any sense for any player, regardless of what they think of the head coach, it doesn't make any sense for that guy to give less than his full effort in a game. All he's doing is affecting his own future because what? The, only, the coach of the team was fooling around in a bar on a Friday night, you know, after the team lost to go to 0-4 and, and then didn't fly home with his mm -hmm. team. I can think of a lot of things that Urban Meyer has done wrong, but for any player to not be giving a full effort against Tennessee this weekend or, or, or in any of the future games, I think is crazy. Now, th there's, there's one other point to make here, and that is the thing about flying home with his team after the game. Remember, we'll go back to when the, the coaching staff of the Jaguars was first announced last winter, and they announced Chris Doyle, the Iowa strength and conditioning coach, as they're, you know, basically their strength and conditioning yeah. guy. And, and immediately there was this outcry. And somebody got to Urban Meyer and said to him, you can't do this. You can't do this. And, and there was a reckoning that day where Meyer got Chris Doyle to uh, resign. And I put those, mm -hmm. that word in quotes. I doubt sincerely that Chris Doyle resigned in the way that we would think of a resignation. Mm -hmm. Urban Meyer went to him and said, we can't, we can't do this. You know, so it's best for all concerned that you resign. And so he did. And, and what bothers me in this particular case is that somebody knew that Urban Meyer was not coming back on that plane from Cincinnati. And somebody should have said to him, Coach, just telling you, it's a very bad look to not mm. go back on the plane with your team. A very bad look. And Carl, quite honestly, we probably wouldn't have even known about right. that if the event in the bar in Columbus on Friday night hadn't happened. Nobody right. would have said anything about it. We wouldn't have known. But we do know about it. It's bad. Urban Meyer needs someone in his organization to say, hey, coach, it's not how we do it in the NFL. And if you do it, you are creating a huge problem for yourself. Even if Urban Meyer gets off the plane in Jacksonville at 2.15 a.m. and there's a private plane waiting for him to then take him to Columbus. And instead yeah. of going to bed at 2 o'clock, he goes to bed at 6 o'clock. Big deal. Yeah. Okay. And so all I'm saying is that what this whole incident tells me is that he needs somebody who in his own organization can tell him, coach, you're creating more problems by doing it this way. Don't do it. Well, it was a Peter. Well, so I, uh, go ahead, I, Carl. I, 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 got, I have a part, few I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Uh, go ahead. I'll let you go. You no, go first. I, I, Peter, I get the part where you say that any player that wouldn't play hard uh, is hurting themselves. 
I don't think players would not not play hard because of a coach. Um, I was on a team with Ray Hanley and and Rod Rust and those guys, and they had zero credibility. We all played hard. We just didn't like the coach, right? Because at the end of the day, it is a business for players. They know that they have to put forth a good effort, but the culture of a locker room is changed. That dynamic of, you know, whether you trust your coach or whether you believe in what he says is different. You're going to go play hard, whether he's the coach or not, if you're smart about your career. But something about a winning culture versus just a football culture, it, it speaks volumes to the belief of and in, in, from players to coach. Okay, but Carl, I, I'll, I'll ask you this question. You know, re, let's let's just let's just um, let's assume, and I, I maybe this is a false assumption, but let's assume that in a football sense, that Urban Meyer knows what he's doing. Okay, let's let's assume that, and let's assume that guys in his locker room, you know, believe that Urban Meyer knows what he's doing. And I, it, you know, I think first of all, it's probably too early to think that he doesn't know what he's doing, okay? Yeah. But, but let's just assume that this guy who one time in his entire career in coaching, uh, 17 years, lost five games in a season. He was never worse than three games over 500 in 17 years of college coaching. So let's assume that he knows what he's doing and, and maybe that mm -hmm. it'll turn out to be a false assumption. So if we assume he knows, he knows what he's doing, all right, I guess I would say, do you think it is a valid thing to believe that, that he could, that, that, that there are guys on that team who could like permanently now not respect him and think that he's not a good coach and not a good leader for the team because of those two events over the weekend? Like, in my opinion, I think, like, if that were me, I would think, you know what? My antennae are up here, okay? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, but it's not like I'm giving up on the guy. That's, that's just how I feel. I might be wrong about it, and I might turn out to be wrong. The only thing I heard this week from inside the team is that Trevor Lawrence was telling a few guys, look, all this stuff doesn't matter. Forget it. It just doesn't matter. We got to play football. And, and I think my feeling is from everything I've heard from those around Trevor Lawrence is that he is sticking up for Meyer right now. So we'll see what happens, but it's a bad look. It's a bad first few months on the job for this guy. And there's no question that Shad Khan, the owner has to be having second thoughts about handing the keys to his franchise to Urban Meyer. But Urban Meyer has it in his hands right now. He has, he's got two strikes on him. Mariano yeah. Rivera's on the mound and he's, <laughs> he's in trouble. Yeah. He's in trouble. So let's see right now if he, uh, if he's got the stuff to get out of this mess and to build his team and to come back from this. And it's in his hands. Yeah, and all my years of traveling with teams, and I was the voice of the Nets, the only time a coach, whether it was with the Giants or the Nets, didn't fly back with the team was we were in Miami with the Nets. Ownership came down. It was the, the year after the lockout. 
or it was the year of the lockout after the Nets had had a good season. Owners flew down. We as the team flew to Toronto uh, to play the Raptors, and John Calipari didn't fly with us, and then he wound up getting fired. I've never seen it before. Peter, the other thing about this, and and I know we're we're short on time here with you, but the other thing about it that bothers me is Urban Meyer does not have a great history of being truthful in yeah. some of the things that he's done. He gave two answers. He said, I needed to clear my head. I thought it'd be a good thing to clear my head um, and spend the weekend, you know, decompress a little bit with the way the season started. But then he said, people knew about this well in advance, including Trent Balky. So what was it? Was it, he knew he was planning this in advance or he needed to clear his head with the way things have gone. And plus from a prepared standpoint, Last time I checked after a Thursday night game, Friday, coaches go to work. Corrections, getting a head start, not just on the next opponent, but the one after that. Maybe you're going to give the guys the weekend off. Last time I checked, though, after a Thursday night game, coaches go to work. This is the NFL. Yeah. It's not college football. It's not right. Florida, Ohio State, where 90% of your games, you're going to roll a team out on the field, and you're just going to have better players. And you're going to use the wide hash and throw an out to a guy who's a five-star recruit against a guy who will never even go to an NFL camp. doesn't work that way in the NFL. What about the preparedness of his football team? I think it's a legitimate question. And I'd like to know what his marching orders were with his coaches. Three days off, see you Monday. Or are his coaches expected to put the game plan together for Tennessee over the weekend so that everybody walks in on Monday and your Monday is basically what a normal Wednesday would be. That I don't know, but I think you're right about that, Bob, that, uh, you know, there's a chance that he thought that his team needed this based on the first month of the season, that they needed this little mini buy. Um, and whether it should have been two days or three days, I think it's a valid, valid question. Interesting. So, Peter, I know you you won't have enough time to explain this one, but I this is my my rant. So you can think on it. So I am not anti-analytic, but my I always say um, analytics don't have a heartbeat, right? And I'm starting to see. I was watching Colin Cowherd yesterday. And he was talking about the teams that are heavy analytical use of analytical data versus teams that are moderate, and the teams that have the most success with the analytical data of that list were teams that had good players. Yeah. And so people, you know, these, I always say analytics are somewhat uh, backward looking because they can't predict the future. They can predict what should happen, but you don't know the result until the humans actually do it. And, you know, on third and whatever, if your star wide receiver is down, or your quarterback, like Russell Wilson, just left a game last night. Do they still apply? You know, and some people never factor in the human element of it. I know you got to go, but that's no. Just I, I got time. Way. I got time, oh. Carl. And there, there's something that I really do want to say about this, and that is that I think people and football, uh, when they talk about football and analytics, they they believe that analytics is a little bit too uh, is a little bit too powerful in the decision making process in football. And I'm going to take you to last Sunday night in Foxborough 
where Bill Belichick had an opportunity to, had a choice with a minute to go in the game and fourth and three, he could either kick a 56 yard, try a 56 yard field goal to go ahead um, or with, with Nick Folk, or he could go for it on fourth and three. And to me, the analytics in this case screamed for him to go for it on fourth and three for two reasons. Number one, Nick Folk, that's, that's probably out of his range or it's very close to his range. And even though he made a great kick, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. and it was, it was long enough, I was at the game. It was raining hard. Yeah. And there was a, there was a slight wind uh, at, at, the, at the same time. So, so I think it was going to be a difficult kick anyway. But let's say that you make the kick and you go up by a point. And you know what you've done when you've made that kick? You've basically given Tom Brady 50 seconds to go and two timeouts needing maybe 50 yards, probably, probably against the softer defense. And for Brady to have, let's just say, eight snaps to make Mm -hmm. 45 yards, 48 yards, I think is a pretty good guess. Now they still got suck up is still going to have to make the field goal for Tampa. But all I'm saying is that, you know, not only was the 56 yard field goal, a long field goal with a guy who, according to the papers in Boston has had some issues with his plant leg anyway, health issues, but it's also that you're giving one of the best quarterbacks, if not the best quarterback of all time uh, for, you know, 50 seconds to try to go 45 yards to get in position to kick the winning field goal. That is the thing. So, so in other words, but I only bring that up because, Hey, look, Belichick has earned the right to thumb his nose at analytics. He has, you know, he's obviously one of the great coaches in sports history, but analytics basically lays out your options and they basically say, okay, here are your options. Now do what you think is best. And look, I think what Doug Peterson did in 2017 was utterly fantastic. What Doug Peterson Mm -hmm. did is he said, I know that if you put this up against analytics, it's going to be very close, but I like going forward on fourth down because I think Carson Wentz is a really good quarterback. I love my offensive line. I'm going to have time to make this play on fourth down. And in most cases, he made it the majority of the time and he looked really, really smart. But I will just well, tell you this. Because, yeah, go ahead. That's because he had the personnel. He say, yeah. he laid out to you why he felt that it, he could do that on fourth down. Not a lot of people will look at their personnel and say, this is going to line up perfectly. Some people will look at it and say, well, the numbers say go for it. But if you don't have the personnel to do it, you've got to do what's in the best interest, don't you? But most analytics, like for instance, right now, if the Pittsburgh Steelers analytics department basically lays out options for Mike Tomlin on fourth and two at the plus 39 yard line, okay, you're going to say, man, a little bit too far for a field goal. Should we go for it? <clears throat> there might be cases like in that where they're, where the analytics would also say, hey, listen, our offensive line's the worst offensive line in the league. 
And so it's not a one size fits all solution right here. You mm -hmm. have to take into account your personnel, which you're talking about. And Carl, that's why I think, look, only, only a coach who is not smart is going to take the sheet of paper that he's handed by his analytics team in which it says all of these things. And keep one other thing in mind. I'll tell you, I, I'm going to tell you how one team, a good team, a consistent playoff team uses analytics. Okay. And this I think is really, really interesting. You know, the, the trackers that teams have on their uniforms, okay. That judge how, how, how long you run and, and, you know, your speed and in every practice, how much you have run. And so, and, and they use that to try to say, Hey, listen, we got to ease up on, you know, Daniel Jones has run too much this week. We got to ease up on him today. Uh, honestly, this, this GM told me this summer, he goes, more than anything else, you know what analytics tells us? It tells us when we need to ease up on guys in practice. He said, our head coach understands analytics very, very well and appreciates them. But for the most part, we use analytics more in practice than we do in games. And it's just, I, I found that to be pretty interesting. That, that is pretty good. But on a note, on another note, the Bill Belichick um, thumbing his nose at analytics, you do know analytics was uh, the major impetus for the game plan we ran against Buffalo in Super Bowl 25. Tell me if about it. I would it. say it was 90% uh, that game plan was based on the analytics of, of what Buffalo, I mean, he laid out a complete uh, data set of what Buffalo did for the last eight games of, this, of the year. And yeah. told us this is why we're playing this defense. Yeah, I think that's good. And look, Bill, what I, my point, Carl, is Bill Belichick has earned his earned the right to say I'm kicking this field goal with Nick Foles, yeah. even though, even though, or not Nick Foles, Nick Nick Folk, uh, but even though I look at that play and I say I'd never have made that decision in a million years, um, and and I still think. I'll think until the day I die that that was a mistake, uh, even if he made it because he left Tom Brady too much time. But again, as I say, he deserves that because right. he's, he's, he's earned the right to make those decisions, and he's right a lot more often than he's wrong. And, Peter, you were there. Um, you know, the play before, the third down play, it, it looks to me as if that ball doesn't get tipped at the line. He's got the guy right in the middle of the field, Mac Jones, yeah. and they're going to yeah. have a big play, and this whole thing becomes a moot point because now they run clock down and have a more makeable field goal. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what really I thought coming away from that game, Bob. I really thought that both teams won, and I thought that if you if you are either a fan of the Patriots, a player on the Patriots, an owner of the Patriots, I said we learned something about this game in a really lousy night with huge pressure on Mac Jones. Yeah, were a lot of the throws dink and dunk? Listen, you complete 19 in a row against air. At, well, you complete 19 in a row against any defense of any length yards down the field. You've done a pretty good job. But especially, yeah. imagine how Mac Jones felt coming into that night where, you know, here's the greatest quarterback of all time who you have replaced 
And, you know, and hey, by the way, go out and beat Tom Brady in Foxborough, you know? And so yeah. that was, that. I thought at the end of the day that if I'm the Patriots, even though it's a loss and, and even though they're eight and 12 post Brady, that, that, was, that was as close to a moral victory as you can have in the NFL. All right, Peter, I know that you've got to get moving here. So where, where's NBC sending you this weekend? You get, are you I'm, heading somewhere? Hey, listen, I am sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn watching all the games, and I don't go out a lot, Bob. I go out in the playoffs, and I go out a few times in the regular season. But one of the things I've really started to love to do is I've loved to have three screens and just focus on all the games. You know, that's that has been really sort of later in my career, something that's really fun to do because after the games, I get, I don't know, six or seven people on the phone after games, depending on the outcome of them. And I, I, I think that I see the entire league better now. All right. And then what's the big football morning in America? Football uh, morning it, it, in America, NBCSports.com every Monday. And I'm pretty much a one trick pony. I do some stories for the football night in America show, but mostly I'm just writing my column. And Bob, you know, what's fun about my life now? I get to take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, kind of semi off for Good like for the you. first time for like the first time in my life. And I have to tell you, it's kind of enjoyable to go to the West Coast to Hazel King's third birthday party, which we did in the last few days. So uh, I'm kind of enjoying this new life. Carl, it's something to shoot for, buddy. I think Carl froze on us. I think he froze yeah. on us. Well, Peter, listen, as we always say when we end the Papa Bank show, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Subscribe. It costs you nothing. And we appreciate you taking a couple minutes uh, to share some of your thoughts about what's going on in the National Football League. And we'd love to have you on down the road again. No problem, Bob. Really enjoyed it. Great to be on with you guys. Thank you. Good stuff. That's Peter King. The best from NBC Sports and Football Morning in America. The column debuts each and every Monday morning. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Subscribe to the Papa Bank Show. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube